Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast powered by Twisted Tea. Today, we have an incredible show for you. We have longtime Fox News anchor Shepard Smith on the show. He talks about his career in journalism, Ole Miss football, growing up an Ole Miss fan, his hatred for LSU, and the importance of Saturday's game, and a hell of a lot more. It was incredible. Uh, I don't really get starstruck very often. Uh, I was certainly in this interview, and he made it incredible, and I cannot thank him enough for it. So buckle up. I really think you'll enjoy this. But before we do, want to take a quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxer. Rent the Sip Oxer's turn bear unit is located off of Old Taylor Road. It sleeps eight comfortably. It's gated. It includes amenities such as a pool, tennis courts, and a sauna. It's a terrific location, less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus. Straight shot to Swayze Field. Straight shot, basically, to Vaught Hemingway Stadium. And, of course, right after that, the Grove as well. Check it out today. It can be tough to find availability on big weekends in Oxford. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered. Maybe you're just passing through on a random weeknight. Maybe you're coming up for a weeknight basketball game and you don't want to mess for the hotel. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered. Go online to rentthesipoxford.com to check availability today. If you use the promo code RIPPYRIGHTS, that is R-I-P-P-E-E, rights, all W-R-I-T-E-S, you get 100 bucks off any two-night stay. Check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Seaspire. Time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with Seaspire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. Seaspire also prides themselves with best customer service in the home internet market. Their customer service is award-winning, local, based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. Seaspire provides 1 gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and Southern Alabama regions. Seaspire is also proud to announce the release of their brand new 2 gigabit and 8 gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online to cspire.com slash home today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and you'll get one month of free service. So you get a free month of internet service and the best internet service in the market just for listening to this podcast. How about that? Check them out. Seaspire customer inspired. Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. Unfortunately, life doesn't always come with an instruction manual. That's why BetterHelp is the world's largest online therapy service connecting over a million clients with licensed online therapists, quick, easy, and affordable you can get matched with the therapist after filling out a brief survey. You can switch therapists at any time, and you don't even have to be on camera if you don't want to. Take care of your mental health today. Go online to betterhelp.com and get 10% off your first month. Betterhelp.com slash MPW to get 10% off your first month. This podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. So the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Center, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Check them out today. Skybox is rolling with their college football and NFL picks packages. Don't be that guy that loses a bunch of money based off their own leans. Skybox is a foolproven method. They'll send you a color-coded pick spreadsheet Divide it up by units, and boom, you're all of a sudden more equipped to profit than before signing up for Skybox. Make this football season a profitable one. Check it out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and get 20% off any picks package. Check them out, Skybox Sports Picks. 
LBGUniversityAvenue.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LBG University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats right now. It's three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go find all your own favorites at the most delicious butcher shop in the world. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here's Shepard Smith. All right, we now welcome on probably the most famous guest we've ever had in this podcast. History is a low bar, but you smashed it. Longtime <laughs> newsman, longtime Fox and CNBC news anchor, Shepard Smith. How are you doing? I appreciate you joining the show. Good morning. Howdy, toddy. Hotty toddy. You have that glow on your face. It's that fresh, like, I'm glad to be in Oxford, Mississippi glow. Is that accurate? That's fully accurate. We got in last night, beat the rain in the Northeast. New York City is completely shut down. <clears throat> All the major highways and airports are closed. So we got out just in time. That's awesome. And when I got your number and we kind of connected about doing the show, they said Shepard would be awesome. This is the perfect week to do it. Not an LSU fan by any stretch, which you <laughs> very quickly confirmed. Where did your uh, hate of the Tigers begin? Oh, I, you know, where does an Ole Miss fan's hate of the Tigers begin? Uh, it didn't begin at Billy Cannon's run. I wasn't born yet. But, I mean, this this rivalry has, you know, young people don't, you know, LSU's been better. Their fans don't see it as much. But but anybody, you know, 50s, 60s, and anybody's been around a while, th- this, is, this is it. I mean, this has decided four or five national championships along the way. You know, their recent history is more storied, but, you know, I, there's nothing. I'm for Ole Miss and who's ever playing LSU every day in every sport. It d- doesn't matter what it is. I I don't use the word hate lightly, but I hate LSU, and, and I enjoy doing it. And the biggest, like, shit about the Billy Cannon thing is no one remembers that we beat the hell out of him like a month later in the Sugar Bowl. Well, they, no, of course they don't, because on a foggy night in Death Valley, Billy Cannon ran all the way down the right sideline and – you know, that that was that. that. That we beat them a month later didn't really matter. I was there when Billy Cannon's number got unveiled up up in their little stadium down there in, in Stinkland. And uh, I just remember our small but, but vocal crowd was screaming, free Billy Cannon, free <laughs> Billy. May he rest in peace. But, you know, that it, it's, part, it's part of an old rivalry that I don't think needs a Magnolia Bowl title. Nobody says that. It's just... You know, we've been we've been doing this with each other for a very long time. And when purple shirts and gold britches roll up in here, you know, we, we, we get as my grandmother used to say, we get our dander up. It's something I learned from my father because I'm 28. So it was kind of past the hot, the heyday of the rivalry. You mentioned they've been better than us recently. But like my dad used to tell me about like the most hostile road trips he took were to Baton Rouge. When was the first time you went to a game in Tiger Stadium? Because that's always like the horror story of being treated terribly and just how hostile their fans are. It it is it was a horror story, and I, you know there are plenty of people from LSU who I like. I have a lot of friends from Louisiana. I have a lot of friends from LSU. The rivalry I, I hate them because they're a rivalry, not for any other reason. Well, there are a few. When we were there in college, I think it was my sophomore year. It might have been my junior year. We played at Tiger Stadium, and my dad had a Sully van, like one of those converted Econoline vans that had the big, you know, 70s and 80s seats in the back. And we went down there. We beat them. They turned the lights off, and we got egged and a window broken in my dad's van just trying to get out of Baton Rouge. So, it, you know, it, it is what it is that, you know, they come up out of the swamps on a Tuesday, 
and and they they lubricate themselves appropriately until Saturday. And then if it's a night game in, in Death Valley, you just, you just better be ready. You, you need to wear a helmet. It's like going to, it's like a Giants fan going to Philly in blue. You learn quickly not to do it, you know? And I, and I have to wear red and blue wherever I go. So it, you, you deal with what you deal with. We don't treat people like that around here. So, you know, y'all do y'all. My first trip to Baton Rouge was not until I was in college. It was the 2014 game where Bo Wallace just kind of lost his mind in the last 35 seconds. We were leading the whole yeah. game and and you lose. And I never forget walking into that stadium. I was trying to like check the score of another game and I like peeked my head into a tent. I was quickly told to like get the hell out of there. And then I got flipped off by a kid who could not have been more than nine years old. And I was like, okay, maybe it's a little different down here. Like they, uh, you're right. We don't treat them that way, but uh, you know, we can take the high road on that one. My, you know, years later, you, another story I want to tell you real quick. Is, yeah, go ahead. Uh, once, <clears throat> once I was, th- there was a period when I was working when, when there was a lot of spotlight and you know, like the tabloids followed me and all that kind of crap. And my company wouldn't let me go to Baton Rouge without security. So I took a security guy who I had at the time for reasons we won't get into, took him down to Baton Rouge with us. And and I'm like, look, this isn't like other games we've been to. They they won't just yell at you. They will come for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, whatever. We get out of the, the car that took us to the stadium. And we had a walk. We didn't pull right up to the stadium. We walked through a crowd. And an older man, at least 60s, started screaming at me and came for me physically. And the security guy had to physically take him down. And I'm like, I told you so. And he, I'm talking about Sergeant Jimmy Campbell, and he talks about it to this day. So you have to be careful when you go in there, especially if you beat him. My father-in-law, God bless him. LSU fan. He can't help it. We can't all be perfect in this life. I mean, his last name's Boudreaux. He's Cajun to the nth degree. Own it. Had three daughters that ended up at Ole Miss, so at least they chose the right side of things here. Uh, that's how I met my fiance wife in a little bit. Is uh, is that Ole Miss our freshman year? And I remember taking him to a baseball game, and it was like Ole Miss Mississippi State or something. We're sitting in the outfield, they sing the national anthem, and somebody screams, "Go to hell, LSU!" Go to hell, LSU! And he looked at me and he goes. LSU's not playing. I was like, you don't understand, man. This happens all the time. This is like a rite of passage. You mentioned you do that at Yankee games sometimes. He was yeah. mind blown by that. It is just a tradition unlike any other. Yeah, and it, it starts a conversation. You know, I, when I go to Yankees game, it doesn't matter. The, the national anthem ends. It doesn't matter what kind of facility I'm in, what game is being played. I, it's always go to hell LSU, and it usually starts a conversation. And, and usually, unless they're unless they have that accent, they agree with you. I grew up going to games. I used to sit on the away side right around the 50-yard lines where my dad had seats. There used to be an older man. We get it. You're doing well. Yeah, in the old Rebel Club. And before the National Anthem, or during the National Anthem, he would scream, go to hell, LSU. It would be varying levels of clear English, depending on whether it was a day or night game and how much that (laughs) that guy had time to lubricate. But I remember as like a seven-year-old kid, I was like, where is the guy? This is like the game's not started until he yells this. And it's just, again, (laughs) it's an incredible tradition. So – We'll start here, your career a little bit. So you grew up in Holly Springs. Were you someone that always wanted to do the news? When did you realize you wanted to be a journalist and get into television? Well, my story for that is when I was a kid around the breakfast room table, there used to be discussions about the Vietnam War. Uh, It was drawing to an end and there were discussions around our breakfast room table and and I, at the time, I was thinking, you know, if only I, I wish I could go over there and find out what's happening, because there were two different narratives, as everybody knows. 
And one of my parents was one way and one of my parents was the other way. And it did cause arguments. And I was like, man, if I could just get over there and then I could let them know and then they wouldn't have to argue about it. We'd know what was actually happening. And then years later, uh, Elvis's funeral was rolling down, I think, Union Avenue or something. And we were watching on Channel 5 in Memphis and they had just gotten a live truck so we could watch it live. And at the time, I said to my parents, oh, man, we're going to be able to be live at things when they're happening. I got to do this. I, I, I got to do this. And that I went to Ole Miss and a newly formed broadcast journalism program, uh, Dr. Pratt and Dr. Hauber and others. And, you know, I learned from them <clears throat> the most important thing that, that young journalists can learn. And that is, well, you got to work hard, but you always have to tell the whole truth and you always have to explain the things that you don't yet know and how you're trying to figure them out. Transparency is the most important thing you can have. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances, what your own feelings are or, or anything else. You have a responsibility to, to the viewers or your listeners or your readers to get it as right as you can. And when you make a mistake, to own it in, as loudly as you made it and and I and I stuck I stuck by that. And you know, I remember Dr. Dr. Jim Pratt, uh, may he rest in peace, telling me, you know, there are gonna come times through your career when your bosses are gonna want you to do something that your gut tells you is wrong. And you stick with your gut. And if that means you get fired or you have to leave, then then you do that. And that's sort of how life ended up playing out. Doc, Dr. Pratt was exactly right. And I and I you, people can say whatever they want about personal feelings. We all have our own biases, of course. But when you're reporting, when you're reporting the news, you you have journalism is the only profession in the Constitution for a reason. The, the fourth estate is important to the survival of the republic. And, and I've always taken that part of the job very seriously. It's incredibly well said. And so I was a reporter for about five years. I do it part time now. I work in marketing and I kind of got into it by accident. Uh, I went to college as a risk and insurance major, which I didn't know what the hell that was. I was just told I had to <laughs> declare a major. I didn't really have any interests. And I got started writing at the Daily Mississippi in the school paper kind of by accident. It was something I fell in love with very quickly. And I decided, man, this would be awesome. I'd love to be a reporter, love to be a sports writer. But at that time, of course, the print media is kind of going downhill. And it was like, it was not a, like, I remember my parents were like, you sure you want to get into this industry? I was like, I really love it. Like, I get it, but I really love it. For you in the 90s, when you're getting into the industry, what was kind of the outlook? Like, what, did you see there was a lot of opportunity there? What was it kind of like for you trying to get into the industry? Well, I actually got in in the 80s. So okay. th there was a CNN, but there was nothing else. There was local, but it was short. So there'd be a half hour at five and a half hour at 10. And there there wasn't a lot of movement. And then there started to be a fourth station in some markets once I got into the business. Sometimes it was a Fox station, though it wasn't Fox yet. And then sometimes they were independents. So I started working in Panama City at WJHG, the NBC affiliate there, and then went down to Fort Myers and worked for the NBC affiliate there and picked up some skills. And then it started, the industry started growing. And by the time I got to Orlando at the CBS and then to Miami to the Fox station, there were there were a lot more places to work. Um, everyone was realizing you can make money off this. And most local stations were still owned locally, which I think is the downfall of the industry. And in many 100%. cases, the, the downfall of the nation and not that we're not downfall, but the, 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 the 
we have less information and more disinformation that, than we should. And part of that is about is about local operations and them being taken over by mega conglomerates. But at that time, I was like, this is starting to look interesting. And then I was in working, working in Los Angeles and Fox and MSNBC started. And I wasn't really interested because they didn't seem to know what they were doing. And the Fox people, they hadn't gone on air yet. But I was like, OK, I'll, I'll go work there for a minute until I can find something else. And I just never left. And they always said, Roger Ailes always said to me, we have to have news in Fox News. Go do the news. I'm like, man, I'm getting all kinds of pressure. And they're like, don't listen to it. You're the news guy. And then and then I would get the hell beat out of me by him, you know, verbally and for, you know, telling true things like Obama was born in America. He does not need a birth certificate. What would be, just crazy crap. And the 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 what, what was it? The, the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Oh, one year God, was yeah. this. It, it, but these narratives were playing their, themselves out in in media right and left and. I'm like, I'm not doing those stories. I'm, they're not real. I'm not, I'm not going to do them. I'm not going to pretend that a lie is, is the truth. I'm not going to pretend that there's a gray area. It's sunny and 90 in Oxford today. I'm not going to say it's raining and cold because that's where we are. And I, I refuse to do it. I'll get back into the business if somebody wants to do a real newscast without pundits, without panels. And, and they want to go gather news and report the news and and let people deal with it however they want. And if people want to say, "Oh, we hate you because you don't like this one," or because you hate that, I don't care. It I, that it's for someone else. I'm not sitting at a table with a panel of people yelling at themselves. I'm done with it. I don't know anybody under forty who wants to see it. Do you? No, I do not either. And you know, the, right. on, the internet, you know, Florida man's be kind of come an online joke. But I can't imagine there's a better place to kind of cut your teeth and learn how to cover hard news than Florida. When I got to WSVN in Miami, their tagline was, when it all comes crashing down in Cuba, <laughs> the big news will be on seven news. And at the bottom of the screen, it would go urgent just in, urgent just in. We'd break into programming in the afternoon constantly. I traveled to Cuba. I traveled to Haiti. I traveled all over the country covering the news in a local station, from a local station in Miami. They spent money. And I learned so much about where the line is. I crossed it at times I shouldn't have, and I learned from it. And and th th those days in local are some of my some of my most memorable. I was mostly writing based. I was working at a radio station at my last full time job, and they like, made me get a podcast, which God bless them for that. I, I really love it now, but I didn't want to do it. I was had a totally a writing background. I had no radio. Did they teach kids. you to have a have a stick have a ceiling fan right over your head like a crown? Yes, they did. They, they, they teach you that? Actually, the first time I did a podcast, I like couldn't get the computer part of it to work. And so I was doing it on my phone. And I was like, it basically what looked behind a porta john. And they're like, you got to stop this. You got to find a better setup. And I was like, okay, if I'm you learning. Put a couple of books on the table and raise your camera up to eye level. That'd probably be better. Yeah, that's that'd probably, <laughs> that'd probably work, work out better for you. How did you, so I, I classically, I think I have a uh, face for radio and a voice for print. I could never do television. <laughs> how did you learn how to do TV? Because that's one of the hardest things. By doing you, it. You just learned on the fly. So like, how did you, so you were just comfortable on camera. Did that ever take any getting used to? I, the camera never did. I mean, groups of people did. I mean, people, you forget, you know, even when I had, like, when I was doing an afternoon show and an evening show at, at Central, I was doing a two o'clock and a six o'clock show every day. 
I mean, there'd be 10 on the stage because, you know, everybody still spent a lot of money then and it wasn't robotic. So there'd be 10 people on the stage, but I knew all of them by name. I knew their wives and husbands and, you know, so I was just talking to a, to a piece of equipment and friends. And then when you're out in the field, it's just you and a photographer. And then once you get to network, there might be an audio guy and a lighting guy. But I mean, I was just hanging out with people I knew and the camera was just, was the only rando in the room. So the camera was the easiest thing. We, like when you get up in front of thousands of people to speak, that that's hard. But talking to a camera, it's that's never been a thing for me. I don't know why. You joined Fox at its inception. I'm curious, what was that job pitch like? Obviously, when you get in the industry, it's like, oh yeah, I want to work for a national station. I want to make it big time. But when that actually yeah, well, happened, I didn't. you get the offer. What what was that like? Did it take any convincing? I didn't want to do those things. That's I, I liked reporting on the local level. I never really anchored. I mean, I, I did a little bit in Fort Myers, but not in Orlando or Miami. And I, I liked reporting. That was that that was where it got my juices going. And I was I'd been working for a current affair, which was the biggest mistake I ever made. They decided they were going to become legitimate, and then then they didn't. While I was there, they changed back to paying for stories and stuff. So. I just wanted out of there. One day they told me to go stand in front of this house during the OJ trial and say that it was Chris Darden and Marsha Clark's love shack. I'm like, it's not. Oh, God. I, I know Chris Darden and Marsha Clark are having a little relationship, but this is where they have team meetings and I'm not going to say it. And they're like, yeah, just read the prompter. I'm like, no, bye. And that, so that was it. And then the show shut down and I was on the beach. So I didn't have a job. I was still getting paid, but I couldn't work. So uh, the, they caught the Unabomber while the Montana Freeman standoff was still going on and the this fledgling Fox affiliate service, there was no news channel yet. We didn't have enough people. And I was in their office exchanging, they were about to have the OJ civil trial. So I was exchanging Rolodex information with the bureau chief there. And they're like, do you know anybody who could go cover, sit on the Montana Freeman while we send a correspondent to cover Ted Kaczynski? And I'm like, well, I guess I could. And they're like, well, we can't pay you because the company's already paying you. I'm like, I'm not really doing anything. I was dating this girl at the time. And I was like, okay, fuck it, I'll go. And 69 days later, I was still there. And we changed seasons and stuff. And I liked the people. And I, did, I wasn't under contract. So when my contract with The Current Affair ran out, Roger called and he was like, hey, I, I run the place. Uh, you want to you wanna keep working here? If so, I'll sign you to three more years. And I was like, well, I don't really have anything else going on. Okay. But y'all don't know how to do TV very well. You're all a bunch of print people. And I don't, you, you, you got a lot to learn. We're going to have to change how you script things and how you present live television. And so I really got to work with them on the very fundamentals of how to tell stories and how to make boring stories interesting and, and how to be serious when the time came. And it, it, we all sort of learned together and it, it was a lot of fun. I, I think we started in 96 and, then we hit our stride by 2000 and that election. And then, of course, 9-11 and, and the rest the rest is history. I read some pretty crazy things about when Fox was gearing up to launch about Roger Ailes. And I read some stuff about like 14 hour work days for rehearsals. What was it like actually prepping to get that thing on air? Well, I, at the time, I was living and working in Los Angeles, but I was working rather than through the L.A. Bureau, which they were about to blow up. I was just working through New York. So I got all my assignments from New York and I was just hopping from city to city there. I would go a month without going home. I'd, I'd go to seven cities in a month and then, you know, I'd be buying clothes along the way. It, there, there weren't enough people to do the job and it was hectic and chaotic and I loved it. But 
So I wasn't in studio during that time. I was always in the field. So I would do my hits for Fox stations. And then we, I would do rehearsals for, for what would be Fox news channel. And they were, they were, I mean, they were horrible. They, they had no idea what they were doing, but they, and if there were YouTube at the time, I don't know if they would have survived <laughs> because we were really bad at it. And, but now you say whatever you want about Fox and if you say it all, it's fine, but that screen looks good. They, they know how to make the screen look good. They know how to present television very well. They're very good at that part of it. What was the first story you covered where you thought, okay, we kind of have something here. We've made it. This is working. Um, we parachuted into, and I, you know, everything we do is maudlin and terrible. And you don't want to say there were successes in horrible situations, but that's just the reality of what this business is. So when, when we parachuted into Columbine, um, it happened during our, we were having a meeting uh, in the basement of our newsroom in, in Manhattan. And I'm like, school, sh school shootings didn't happen then. I'm like, school shooting ongoing. We got to go. And my boss, John Moody goes, oh, Hey, well, let's, let's wait, 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 slow down. Let's, let's wait and see what, cause I've got a go bag sitting right there. I'm ready to run to LaGuardia. He's like, let's see what this is. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? There's a gun. There's at least one gunman in a cafeteria and kids are dead and running out of a building. We have to go. And I just went and I got to the airport and of all the New York people, of all the big networks and the cable networks, I was the first one there. So we hit the ground. We had three people. We had a rented satellite truck and and three of us, me, a photog and a producer. And we held air for about six hours and. We did it with respect and we didn't bombard kids in the way that the morning show producers did by the next day. And we, we, we kept in mind that these people are going through something they could never have foreseen and will never forget. And we can't be part of the problem. We need to try to be part of the solution. And we did a good job and people actually watched us. And I felt like things came together well then. And we, we didn't do it pretty, but we did live TV and we did it faster and better than others. One thing about us in the early days was it, it, anybody who's worked in a big corporation knows there's so many levels of approval, but at FNC back in the day, in the early days, especially Roger just said yes or no. And then it happened. And that, that lack of levels of, of management it, that's over now there and everywhere else. But we were very agile and very nimble and, you know, ABC be over there with 20 people. CNN would have 12, have 12, we'd have three and we'd, we'd have better stuff than they would. I, I was proud of those early days. We'll get back to Shepard in just a second. But before we do, I want to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've had before. It is made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering on your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unfor an unforgettable game day experience. Twisted Tea, the drink that feels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. This podcast is also brought to you by AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. 
I gave AG1 a try because I'm not always the best about eating healthy and I knew my body needed something to fuel it better and give it the nutrients that it needs. And AG1 is great. I take it every day. It has definitely made a difference. You should try it too as well. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to AG, go to drinkag1.com slash MPW. That's drinkag one slash mpw to check it out today all right back to Shepard. what is it like covering a story you know thousands of miles away you're covering it on a national level you articulated it very well earlier talking about telling the entire truth telling every side of the story does that become more difficult when you're at a national level and you're not on the ground close to the story what is it like gathering all the facts and information sometimes from far away well when you're if, if something happens in your home market you have a whole you have a, a web of resources and other reporters and people to go cover all the different angles but when you're especially in the early going of something that's breaking you're you're generally largely alone until you can flood the zone with correspondents and producers and all that if it's if it's breaking so you just try to just say what you know i mean i remember in new orleans in the early part of katrina you know i'm i'm standing on a bridge and i'm like it is what it is i i, I said to them i'm listening to to the radio the big the big nine, 10 or whatever the big station down there is. And Billy Nungusser, who was the, who was at the time, the parish president in Plaquemines parish got on the radio and said, the, 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 the levees bur the levee has been breached. And from that, I knew from studying the hurricane, all the models that if, if that breached, that would, that would flood the city. It would flow, flood the lower night. It would, and I knew that's what would happen because I'd studied it for years. I'd covered so many freaking hurricanes, you know, and I went on air without going through editorial positions. I'm like, I was on and I heard it. I'm like, the levees breached. According to Billy Nungusser, the, the parish president, that means the city is now going to flood. And they blew one million gaskets in New York. They pulled me off the air and said, you are ahead of the, you are ahead of the facts. I'm like, nope. I'm ahead of the Associated Press. I'm not ahead of the facts. I quoted the parish president. That's the lead governmental authority for the parish, for the county. For, they call him parish. I'm like, that's it. It, it. This is a true thing. So there were apologies later. But you, you can only report what you know or what you can attribute to a trusted source. And the parish president standing there watching it is a trusted source. I couldn't get there because you couldn't get around at the time. But... You know, so that's that's one example of you can you, you just have to report what you know and make sure to tell the audience what you don't know, because sometimes that's more important. Like I I know that I know that this has happened. I, I don't know how everybody is affected yet because I haven't seen them. Now, a day later, I'm watching them come out of the water and letting them tell their own stories. But, you know, that that became completely political, as everything else has ever since then. You know, when I'm standing there going, no, the help isn't here. And Hannity's going, but we've seen the help roll again. I'm like, I don't care what you've seen. I'm here. It's not here. There are still people sick and dying. I am watching them do it. That I'm not putting it on TV is because you don't put people dropping dead on TV. You, you don't do that. But I'm here to tell you I'm seeing it. And if you want to call me a liar for that, well, I can show you the video. I just don't put it on television. There are dead people all around me, Okay. It, sometimes reality is so crazy that it's really hard to put together. Wait, the levee's breached and the city's going to flood. I'm like, yeah, 
that's exactly that's exactly right. It all goes back to what you said earlier is trusting your gut. I remember the first time I ever like broke a story and I knew I had it. I knew it was there. I knew it was correct. But there's always like sometimes, particularly in sports, there's a time period before it actually comes out versus when you report it. And that's a very unnerving time because, you know, you have it, you know, it's right. But, man, please just hope it plays out that way. Did you ever kind of have that feeling when you had a story or a scoop? Of course. And, you you, you know, you got to have that second source. You know, and that second source is key. I got scammed. I think the biggest time I ever got really bamboozled was when I was covering John Bonet, and I had to cover all that. And at the same time, I was covering the Oklahoma City bombing trial in Denver. So I lived in Denver and Boulder for months. And there was this couple who had this story about John Bonet's family, and there was a second source and a third source, but it turned out all the sources were scam sources and and I put them on the air and, uh, you know, I, that was one of life's darkest moments. You know, I, I, it didn't hurt anybody and it didn't change the world, but it was really embarrassing. And, and that never happened again. As you said, you always just wanted to do the news and you see yeah. less and less of that today. You see so much just bullshit and fake stories that don't matter. And I know I've never worked in major television, of course, but I know you're probably facing pressure on what rates versus what is news. Of course. When did that happen? Was that throughout your entire career? Or did you notice a shift toward 2000s? Ratings kind of always matter. Ratings always mattered from the very beginning. But that affected the way you tell stories, not, not uh, the stories that you covered. You know, you can make a city council meeting interesting. Like back in the days in Panama City, they're talking about land development in South Walton County, <clears throat> which is now 30A. So where everybody from this part of the world... You know, if you get if things go well for you, you might get a place down there. Well, this was at the beginning when they were deciding about land usage down there. And they were like, can we go 30 stories here? And they were, you know, putting the rules together and there were two sides. So rather than showing the meeting, you go down there and go, all right, here's what this is going to look like. Here's this stretch of beach is now going to be this. That means there's going to have to be water and sewer. There's going to have to be roads built. It's going to change everything. Now, you decide how you feel about that. But here's how it's going to change. So one way is a meeting and it's boring. And another way is here's what the future is going to look like if this if this shit happens. And, and then you can either tell all the details of a story. You know, the God is in the details. And, you know, it, it, here's what this means. And here's what's happened to this person. And it's always better to tell a story through a person's experience than through a governmental official. I don't want a politician on. I want a, I want a regular person down the street who's affected by this. It's just a more compelling story. We can all relate to it better. So there was pressure to tell a story in a more interesting way. And then the pressure, once Twitter came along, was to do what gets clicks because there, the metrics were such that they thought the length of tune, which is what's most important now, how long you keep a viewer, because no new ones are coming. Young people aren't coming. So the longer you kept them, the better. And if you gave them the food that they wanted to eat, if you gave them all dessert and kept them riled up, they would stay with you. I'm not here to keep them riled up. That is not my job. My job is to inform them. And if I can do it in a way that's, I, I don't, I, I don't, I want the news to be entertaining when it can be, you know, some things are just wild. And, you know, you talk about Florida, man, they're, there are plenty of stories that are worth telling that are interesting and can be told in a compelling way, or you can sit there and act like you're bored with it all. I was never bored with it all, and I wasn't going to pretend to be.
my fiance and I just finished watching a wonderful show called Newsnight, Will McAvoy. And so much about that show when I was prepping for this, like mirrored your career. And they fought the whole BS, fake stories, ratings, whatever, versus just actually wanting to do the news. And it was a very refreshing reminder of just kind of where things have gone. Why do you think we have less and less of that now? Why do you think we have more fear mongering and people yelling at each other versus actually doing the news? Because we should be getting 90% news, 10% the opposite. And it's just gone the complete opposite direction. I think we're all worse off as a society for it. Why do you think that's happening? I, I agree with you fully we, because ra rage sells. If you can get people riled up, worried about the other guy, you if, if you have a whole section of society as our society is changing and has been for quite some time now. The, the kinds of skills that you need to get ahead are different than they used to be. And there's a whole group of society that's left out as a result. We all know this. And if th they need somebody to blame, and if you can blame the ones coming across the border or the ones that have more pigment and you can set them up as the villain, then it, my predicament is not on me. It's on someone else. And if I, and I am mad about it. And if you can feed that rage, you'll just keep coming back because that rage, that rage will keep the problems within your own life that you cannot solve, that you can't solve. You have someone to be mad at about it. So it's not your own fault. And that's what so many of these of these rage machines are about. Keep them there. Get the clicks. Keep them engaged. Have them stay with you uh, because whatever is happening, it ain't your fault. That's not how life is. It's just, it's not. I, you know, I'm that now you got to understand computers to, to transition your life from what it was to what it needs to be uh, means you, you need to learn to understand computers. And, and it, instead of just sitting around being mad that your situation has changed, you need to be proactive about yourself. And that's what we ought to be saying. And that's what we ought to be preaching. We're all angrier and we're all less informed. And it just creates this incredibly weird dynamic. For you, toward the end of your time at Fox News, you were very admirably and bravely calling out people at your own network for kind of falling into that trap. I and actually just, never used their names until the very end. Really? It was just, I, I was trying to explain that some of this wild stuff you're hearing, you know, throughout the ecosystem, echo chamber that is a siloed, and they're all siloed now. They're, we're all in our own silos. You know, we're all very tribal. I'm like, some of the stuff that you're hearing from everywhere is simply not true. You know, it is, it, it's just not true. And it's not going to be true. You know, and the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth wasn't, wasn't true. Um, you know, the invasion wasn't true. We have a comprehensive immigration problem that needs to be solved legislatively. And they're not solving it because this way they have a boogeyman. We need people to be working. This this thing is a disaster, not because of border control. It's a disaster because of policy. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, if we help figure out how to solve the crises that are that are the nations from which these people are escaping, that, that's where our energies and money needs to be, be spent. Because as long as where they're at doesn't allow their kids to have a future, they're going to try to go to a place where the kids are going to have a future. And that's what this is. They're not invading. They're not coming for you. They're trying to survive and they're doing whatever they can do. And our policies need to change to fix it. And our leaders are failing us as they have for a long, both sides. They're all failing us.
And that's what I was going to ask you. Did you ever feel like a crazy person when that shift really started to take a turn and you're sitting there doing the news and you're rooted in reality and rooted in truth and fact? Did you, did you ever look around and was like, hey, what the hell are we doing here? Like, I knew I the what crazy they were doing. Telling the truth? No, I knew what they were doing. I was very well aware of what they were doing. And I was also well aware that's not my job. You know, people have been, you know, back to the early days of Rush Limbaugh and, and the other side too, Air America, you know, they've been you know, trying to reconstruct reality for their own little group for, for a long time. But once you once we lived in a world where you could live in that fake reality completely online and among your friends, once we got there, I, I don't know how we pull back from this. You know, as long as there's social media that will feed you the food that you want and, you know, the facts of the day are dismissible and the real problems are ignored in favor of, you know, fake investigations... I don't know. I don't know how we get out of it. I, 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 a lot of people a hell of a lot smarter than I am haven't figured it out. And I certainly don't have any idea. I just know that I have a responsibility, whatever platform I'm on, to just make sure that I'm telling the truth and and not shading anything, no matter what my feelings are. And But that's not what people gravitate toward. Some people do, but but the people who are all riled up don't. When you're reporting a story live on air as it's unfolding, it's an incredibly difficult job. And, you know, sometimes mistakes happen or something goes wrong or you get something wrong. I'm just curious, like, how hard is it to not lose your shit, for the lack of a better phrase, on air when something goes wrong and you still got to do the show and you still got to do the story? You know, it's when the moment is big. Like, I remember being on the air at 9-11. I remember being on the air when when Kennedy's plane crashed. I, you know, there are just so many so many times, so many life altering moments. When those moments are upon you, you recognize it before the people around you do and before the people at home do. Because you've been there before and you realize, okay, we're in a moment now and everybody is now going to go look for information. And this is the time to slow down. Things are very serious and we're going to go through this calmly. And I'm going to take you, the viewer, by the hand and get you through this the best I can. And I'm going to get the best information together. I'm going to let you know what I know and what I don't know. And we're going to treat this moment with respect. And there's lots of times when you can have fun and, you know, be frivolous. And, and then there are times when you can't. And you recognize those moments when they come. And you let the floor crew know. And you talk to the booth like, okay, here we go. We call it rolling thunder. There are no more commercials. There's no time to regather. There's no time to reset. You're just going. And I was usually a solo anchor. And sometimes it would be for an hour. And sometimes it would be for seven or eight hours, you know, with barely a pee break. So it, you just have to remember, none of this is about you. None of this is about how you feel. And all of this is about respectfully holding the hand of the viewer and bringing them along with you and telling them at every step of the way what you don't yet know what is not yet confirmed. And then later in the internet age, especially in the social media age, we know you're seeing this on social media. We cannot confirm this. We, we, we can't knock it down. We can't confirm it. We're working on it, but don't be freaking out about it because we're not there yet. And, you know, that was a lot of the battle in the, in the late latter years of my career was trying to knock down disinformation that was taking people to a level that's not that's not comfortable and is injurious. So I, I spent some time doing that. And granted, I only have a tiny little audience compared to the whole country, but that those are the ones I'm serving. 
And everything you've said is so refreshing. And it made me reflect back to the John Oliver segment on journalism a few years ago, talking about the death of newspapers and how that's kind of gutting the way we consume news. I'm not going to ask you, as you alluded to earlier, how we fix it. Do you think it ever gets fixed? Do we ever get this entire thing fixed? I don't know. I, I think that we're going to have to do some regulating, which nobody wants to do. I think it, there has to be. I, here's the thing. Uh, Dr. Jerry Jordan, who used to be a music professor at Ole Miss, is starting has donated a considerable sum of money and has gotten a lot of matching funds to start a center at Ole Miss for understanding, recognizing and putting down disinformation in society. And they're going to teach it as a course and eventually, he hopes, as a major. Because I think the disinformation challenge is one of the great challenges of our day. And I feel like I have a pretty good nose for disinformation. I understand following trusted sources and that sort of thing. But people who live in silos, information silos, don't. And the only way to get out of, the, get out of it is to get out of those silos. Like I kept feeling, like, okay, there's going to be a moment when we all wake up and go, okay, there's a higher cause as we did in World War II, as we did af after 9-11 where we'll come together. And when COVID came along, I'm like, this might, this might be the one. And instead social media and silos allowed us to demonize. <laughs> I mean, that was freaking just wild. I mean, we've developed vaccines that will save us. And now the vaccines are the enemy and we're still living it. So I, until, unless and until we can, I guess the next big horrible thing to happen and it will, if it rolls like COVID rolls rolled, we're in trouble. Because we, we, we have to understand when what the, what the truth is and, and what the lies are. And we're not there. I don't know how we get out of it. I think we have to get out of it through regulation. There has to be a way to use AI to knock down disinformation. I'm hopeful that somebody comes up with that. When was the first time you realized like, oh, this is a different deal. People know who I am. I'm famous, recognizable. When you get to a national station, you told the story earlier about having security at Tiger Stadium. When was the first time you're like, okay, this is a different deal. I'm a little more notoriety, larger audience. People know who I am. It's all, it's the same. And I, I mean, since I've been doing this for so long, I mean, when I lived in Panama City, I was on a station that got a, you know, a 55 share. That meaning 55% of all televisions turned on at that time were turned on to that channel. So everybody in our little town was watching that channel. And it wasn't weeks in until my wife and I were at the grocery store and people started coming up, you know, so, and that would have been 1987, 1988. And then it's that way in every market. And then, you know, once you're on nationally, it, it's just it's just all it's just kind of how it's always been. It's, it's part of life when you when you have as you make new friends and move to new places, it's it's more of a thing for them than it is. It's you know, it's kind of embarrassing that sometimes when someone who means well and is being really nice will go, hey, whoever you are, who happens to be your best friend, would you take a picture of us? I'm like, well, they've been doing that all day. And I would really prefer if you would get someone else to do that, because this is not my assistant over here. This is my friend. <laughs> so, I, you know, fame is a weird thing. I mean, I've never thought of myself as famous. I've, I've just thought of myself as, as recognized because I've, people have allowed me to come into their homes and they, they all come at you with something different. Usually it's something positive, but these days, sometimes it's not. I read a book recently called Hatching Twitter by Nick Bilton, a great author, did like the Silk Road book. And basically the conclusion was this is the biggest waste of time ever. What are like you you're not on Twitter, right? Have you ever been on it? What are your kind of thoughts on just like Twitter Nick, and social media in general? Nope. 
I, from the very beginning of Facebook, I'm like, oh, this is a data, this is a data collection scheme. That's what this is. And I, you know what? I, I'm old. I, I guess that's part of it. But like my partner's 23 years younger than I am. And most of my friends are in their thirties and very early forties, mostly thirties. I'm like, it's very narcissistic to me to, I'm, I'm, I'm have, I have a good life. I'm, you know, I'm so freaking lucky. I'm going to post pictures of myself on a boat or on a beach or on a mountaintop and be like, yo, 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 look at me. No, that sounds fucking terrible. So I, I'm not on those platforms. I don't, I'm not under the illusion that somebody might give a fuck what I have to say, what my opinion is about things. And, and, and they, I can't imagine they would care about, you know, the game I'm at or the, or the show I'm at or the beach I'm on. I it just seems very narcissistic and weird to me. Now you go ahead. I, I'll lurk and I'll look at things. And I just don't feel like I've never felt like posting it while living a very public life in many ways. I, I, I like the, I like the chillness of, you know, coming to Oxford with my friends and knocking back a beer at the library. And, you know, I, that's how I kind of want to live. It's just, so I'm kind of straddling, straddling both lines for a while. I didn't deal with it very well. I didn't deal with everybody coming up to me all the time very well because it was just too much. But but now it's like, okay, cool. I, I, I don't mind it anymore. We'll get back to Shepard in just a second, but I wanted to take one more quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by Caldera. Fall is here, gentlemen, and it's about to get busy during the holidays. Don't let that stop you from sticking to your habits and being the best version of yourself. That's where our friends at Caldera Lab come in. These guys are the best in the skincare game with an easy routine keeping your face looking pretty no matter your schedule. Plus, what's a better gift than clear skin? Join the other 100,000 men who trust Caldera Lab to show your best self and first impression this fall. Plus, it's a great gift. Caldera Lab is the leader in men's skin care made only with top-tier ingredients and clinical trials that found 94% of men's skin showed an overall younger-looking experience after using Caldera Lab for a few weeks. And just for your audience, we have an exclusive deal you're not beating this offer. Use promo code MPW at calderalab.com for 20% off right now. That is promo code MPW for 20% off Caldera Lab right now. Check them out. This podcast is also brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get warm, fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's a number, America's number one meal kit. Kickstart a fresh fall routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard part and you get to take the credit. When it comes to options, honestly, more is more. That's why HelloFresh's menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-ons to choose from every week. HelloFresh has definitely saved the Rippy household some time. It can be tough to find good quality meals. Kind of a pain in the butt to go to the grocery store. And HelloFresh has removed that problem for us. So you should try it today to go to HelloFresh.com slash 50MPW. Use the promo code 50MPW for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Check them out today at HelloFresh.com. All right, back to Shep. Journalism is such a competitive field. It's the next story. It's not getting scooped. It's worrying about your job, trying to get to the next level, a bigger and bigger market. As you look back now, have you allowed yourself to reflect back in your career and what you've accomplished? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I look back and, you know, did, did I do enough? You know, I I look back and go, I could have done this better. I could have done that better. I, I shouldn't have made that mistake. I should have written down I should have kept a log. I should have written, as I tell everyone young today who's in our business or anything like it, write two sentences down every day. 
because I've reported in 49 states and 16 countries. You know, I, I've I've had a, a really remarkable experience thanks to this career. And a lot of it I don't remember <laughs> because, like you said, you know, you, you work 14 hour days and you work and you work and you work and you work and then you collapse and then you go work again and then you collapse. But if I'd written two sentences every day today, I interviewed the, the, you know, the president of this country, or today I met a lady who helped her help save her neighbor. Or if I just written down those things along the way, the books that I could write now would be, would be richer. <laughs> um, I wish I had taken the time to take, to take it all in. It was just all happening so freaking fast. You know, I'd be at the Pentagon one day, I'd be in London the next day. I'd, I'd be in South Florida the next day in Denver to close out the month. It was just, that's just how it went for years on end, just into one hotel out of the other. Mo a lot of days I would wake up and not know immediately what city I was in. A, a lot, more often than not, honestly. Are we winning on Saturday? What do you think? I, I You know what, man? Um, I'm not that fan who gets down on the program. It's not however old ever. I just, I'm for Ole Miss and whoever's playing LSU. But this game feels like the biggest must win in recent memory. And it's a tall order, you know, it's a tall order. I mean, Jaden Daniels to neighbors is going to be really difficult for our secondary. This is, it's going to be a tough, we're going to have to figure out how to run the ball so that there is an RPO. You know, if, I think that their secondary is vulnerable. I think we'll be able to go over the top to go over the top. We have to run the ball. We haven't been able to do that this season, but bigger picture you have do a lot of jaw jacking before the Alabama game going into Tuscaloosa. And now you're, you're sitting at home against your biggest traditional rival over, over the centuries. And we lose this game. The narrative changes the lane train and the hotty toddy. Look at their uniforms and look at this fun offense. All of that does a 180. I know because I've been on the other side of the camera, they will bury us. You, you lose to Alabama and then you lose to LSU at home. And then, you know, history says when you have a team built on the portal, you know, it's, it's hard to instill a culture. You, you win, win tomorrow. Anything is possible. You know, all of our dreams live. And I'm not this naysaying guy, but lose tomorrow. The narrative is going to be hard to fight. And the children who play for our football team are going to be hard to keep on board. We, tomorrow's a must win. Tomorrow's a must win. For the team, for the coach, for the administration, for the university, for the fan base, for everything. We, we got to win tomorrow. And if we don't win tomorrow, it's basketball season. <laughs> Hell yeah. It's Which I'm excited about. Era. I mean, I said that last week too, but I think both of them were true at the time because the way he treats There's that no shame, game. no shame in losing at Bryant Denny ever, no matter what year under any circumstance. It's great to win there as we did in 2015, but, you know, at home, LSU, we have on paper, we have the horses. We definitely have the coaches. We, we should win this game. We don't win this game. What's the signature win? I was talking about this earlier on SEC this morning. Is it Indiana, 11, number 11, Indiana? Is it the Kentucky game? I mean, what's the signature win? I'm for this team. I'm with them through thick and thin. I've been with them every year through wins and losses. I'm for 60 years and that's not going to change. But the big picture will change if we lose tomorrow. We will become not irrelevant. We will become a doormat. They will because they will come for us. 
Last thing I have for you is you mentioned all those years you're going and going and going your different cities, different countries. It's on the job all the time. How is Ole Miss football, Ole Miss sports kind of an escape for you? What has it been like you're so busy all the time keeping up with Ole Miss football? I imagine that has to be a little bit of a reprieve from the day-to-day madness. I wish it were an escape. <laughs> it's another lane that I live in all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a gay guy with mostly gay friends. You know, we, we, we run around the country in groups of gays and – it's not really what most gay people do, you know? So I'm fighting this battle. I'm like, come on. I, I took them all to Cal when we went out there and played. I, I bring them to Oxford. I take, I take my friends every, you know, to all the places where we go. And, and I'm, I'm obsessed. And I, during baseball season, I'm obsessed with Bianco and that team. During basketball season, I'm obsessed with that. I, I can't just let it go. If I could just let it go, I would let it go. Because life would be easier without it. But I don't think it would be complete. You know, this this thing is literally in my blood. Most people I know from the Northeast, it's not. People aren't about college football. You come from New York. Who are you for? Rutgers, UConn. I mean, it's it's a hard road to hoe up there. But this is our life. You know, we didn't have Jets and Giants on the corner and Yankees and, and Mets. And we didn't have any of that stuff. What we had was right here in this place. And to me, it's special and it matters. This is where the future leaders of our state and our region are given the, the lift up. You know, Ole Miss really matters. It, it matters on so many levels. And to be successful, sadly, maybe, as an institution, we got to win on Saturdays a good bit. It, everything about Ole Miss will change if we, if we, if we do that. And, and I follow it as a fan. I follow it as a, a person who cares about this state and this region and about our young people, because I think they're, they're not being well served by the government here. And I, I think that this institution can save us. And for this institution to be successful, we got to do well. And I'm for them tomorrow for a million reasons. I, I hate the smell of corn dogs. I hate purple and gold. And I hate LSU. And we got to win tomorrow. We, we, we have to. We have to win. I haven't felt that way many times over the years. Like, like we got to win or this whole thing's going to hell. But that's how I feel about tomorrow. Amen to that. He is Shepard Smith. I really appreciate your time. You're very generous. And I really, really appreciate it. This was a treat for me. Thank you very much for joining the show. Enjoy your weekend. And uh, let's beat the hell out of the corn dogs. It's been fun. Hotty toddy. Go Rebels. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. I cannot thank Shepard Smith enough for the time. Um, I thank Vincent Hollis for putting that together. That was an incredible enjoyment for me. So I really appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as much as I did. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and uh, we'll talk on Sunday with Weldon.